Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. For by these He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises in order that by them you might be partakers of the divine nature. Before we get into God's Word this morning and study some of His... or this evening, you've got me saying morning now. This evening and um, looking at His Word, let's make sure that we're in fellowship, uh, filled with the Holy Spirit. We do that through the use of 1 John 1, 9, just privately naming, admitting, acknowledging our sin to God the Father. Then we'll open in prayer. Let's bow our heads together. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together as a body of Christ to study your word, that we might grow and mature in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for the freedom that we have in this country to gather together like this. Father, we thank you for your word that is so clear and perspicuous. We pray that we would not hide from the light of your word as it shines upon us this evening, and that your Holy Spirit would make these things clear to us, that we would be uh, comforted, encouraged, evaluated, and instructed by your word. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. We got down to verse 2 last week, which begins with a mandate for the Christian life. It's a Paris middle passive imperative, which indicates that it's a general command for the spiritual life. To count it all joy. This is the first of some 58 imperatives in the book of James, which tells us that there are a lot of principles in this epistle for us to pay attention to. These mandates convey the principles that we must follow if we're going to have success in the spiritual life. Well, just because you're a believer does not guarantee success in the spiritual life. Because you're a believer just gives you a puts you in a position where you have the potential for success in the spiritual life. You have to make decisions every moment of every day whether or not to apply the doctrine that's in your own soul. So it is a moment-by-moment venture. If you decide to go negative and begin and stay there for long, then it eventually will destroy your spiritual life. You won't lose your salvation because our security is not dependent upon what we do. It's dependent upon the faithfulness of God. But our, uh, our whether we are winners or successful in the spiritual life is dependent upon our consistent study of God's Word, learning it, taking it in, applying it consistently in our lives so that we can grow. What we see here in this mandate is that we are to consider or count it, add everything up, whatever it is we're going through, count up these trials, and to consider it joy. Now, the main thing we saw here last week is that our happiness, the joy in our lives, is a mental attitude. This is not the happiness of the world, which is dependent upon circumstances and things, but this is an inner happiness that is dependent upon the stability that we have from the Bible doctrine in our souls. So we looked at three principles that were important to that. First of all, to the degree that you base your happiness on people, circumstances, and events, to that degree you are enslaved by those things. When you say, I have to have certain people in my life or people have to respond to me a certain way in my life um, or circumstances have to be a certain way in my life, I have to live a certain place, live a certain lifestyle, have certain things, whatever they may be, uh, certain events have to take place. Whenever we say that, that we have to have that to be happy, then we're saying that that other thing, those people, those events 
control our happiness. And so we immediately put ourselves on an emotional roller coaster that changes every time events change. And that's the picture of the double-minded man that's unstable in verse 6. He's tossed like the wind, driven about one day you're up, next day you're down. You're just totally at the mercy of your emotions. To the degree that you base your happiness on people, circumstances, and events, to that degree you are enslaved by those things. Secondly, when you base your happiness on people, circumstances, and events, which are the details of life, you make someone else or something else in charge of your emotional well-being. You're totally dependent on them. You're saying, I'm going to give you charge of whether I'm happy today. Happiness is your decision. That's the point of this imperative. Happiness is your decision. Nobody else can do it for you. You alone are in charge of your own happiness and your own mental stability. And it all depends on what you do with doctrine. Third, if you base your happiness on the details of life, on people, circumstances, and events, then you will guarantee that you will be miserable in life and an absolute failure in the spiritual life. Count it all joy. The point is that we're to look at whatever we're going through in life, add it all up, and the result is joy. But what exactly is joy? What exactly is the happiness that this passage is talking about? Well, before we get into defining what joy is, we need to realize that this command to count it all joy presupposes something. It presupposes that we can add something up to come to that conclusion. It presupposes that we have some doctrine in our soul that we can call to mind in those situations. If there's no doctrine, you can't apply this. There's nothing for you to add up. There's nothing for you to there's nothing in your in your soul that is going to equate to joy because you're still you're just spiritually bankrupt at that point. You might be a believer, but your soul is empty of doctrine, so you don't have anything to believe. Remember, faith always has an object. You have to believe something. You have to believe promises of Scripture, whether salvation promises or spiritual life promises, faith rest promises, whatever they may be. You have to have some category of promise to believe. So, the doctrine that we must have in our souls before we can do this, relates to the doctrines of suffering, adversity, and stress. So let's take a few minutes to just review what we covered last week related to the doctrine of adversity and stress. First of all, there are two kinds of pressure in life. The first is adversity. Adversity is defined as the inevitable outside daily pressures of life that attack and seek to penetrate the soul. Now the soul is what makes up the real you. We'll use this circle here to describe you. Inside this circle, you have self-consciousness. You are aware that you exist. When you look in the mirror, you know who you are. Now, I've watched my dogs, and I've seen them run up to a mirror, and they look in that mirror, and they see their reflection. They think it's another dog. They don't have a self-consciousness. They don't have a self-identity. They don't know that that's them. They just see another dog there. Self-consciousness. Secondly, you have mentality. You have a mind. You have an intellect with which to think. You have a mentality in your soul. Mentality is where you store what you learn. You have memory. That's where you have categorical storage, where you learn all the various facets of, of life itself, including doctrine, 
and you store this according to category. You also have emotions. Emotions are the responders to life. Uh, we respond with, to different circumstances and different things with elation and excitement or stimulation, or we respond with sadness and sorrow. We sometimes respond with, with emotional sins like anger or hatred or vindictiveness, but these are responses to situations in life that are basically predicated upon what we, what we believe, what is stored in the mentality of our soul. If I were to come running in here and tell you that your child was just run over and killed in an automobile accident, how would you feel? You are believing that your child has just been killed. What is the emotional response? Now, if I were to run in two or three minutes later and say, oh, sorry, it was somebody else's child, now what is the emotional response? You see, the emotions respond to what you believe in the mentality. Now, as a believer, in the mentality of our souls, we usually have, we, we're, we're sort of, uh, have split personalities. Because part of us, and there's one section that still believes human viewpoint. And when we're out of fellowship, boy, that's where we're focusing is on human viewpoint and false doctrine. And when we're in fellowship and walking with the Lord, then on that other side, we're focusing on doctrine and on the truth. And if we're operating over here on the negative side, then what's going to happen is we're going to respond to those circumstances and events in life with those negative and sinful emotions. If we're over here operating on positive volition in the mentality of our soul, then what's going to happen is when we have certain things happen because we're operating on the truth and true belief, then that's going to give us emotional stability, which is what we see going on in this passage. So another facet of our soul that I'm going to describe with another circle is our volition. Our volition can either be uh, positive or it can be negative. It can be for God and for truth or against God and truth. And then we have a fifth area, and that is our conscience, which is where our norms and standards, our value system, it's stored where, where we have our, our ideas about right and wrong and morality and virtue. All of these things are categorized in our conscience. So this is our soul. And the reason I have all these circles interlocking is because they're not five separate things. You're not either operating on your mentality one second and emotion on the next. They're all intertwined. You have one soul that is made up of these different facets and we separate them out for academic purposes of discussion and learning, but in reality they're all intertwined and they all work together uh, with, within our soul. Now, we have this soul and we go through life and we have various adversities, external pressures that come. Sometimes they're prosperity tests. That's also a form of adversity. We go, well, I want to have some of that adversity, I know. But you have prosperity and adversity, and these attack the soul. What they do is they present you with certain circumstances or situations that give you the opportunity 
to choose to apply doctrine or reject doctrine. That's why it's called a test. You get that opportunity, a test. Am I going to apply what I've learned in Bible class or not? Every one of these circumstances is a is an examination. How am I going to respond in this situation? I can respond either positively and apply doctrine or negatively and reject doctrine. That's why this word that we're going to run into here, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, and the Greek word here is perasmos. P-E-I-R-A-S-M-O-S. And in some passages it is translated tests, and in other passages it is translated temptation. Why? Because when you come into that test, you have a temptation to respond to that situation, that outside pressure with your sin nature and on the basis of your own capabilities and your own knowledge and on the basis of human viewpoint, what will ease it for you? What will make it easier for you? What will satisfy the lusts of the flesh? Whatever it may be, you have this test, this opportunity to either obey God or disobey God, to be positive or negative to the Word, to apply or not apply, and there's a temptation there that somehow I'm going to avoid the pressure or the test or the adversity if I just do it this way. You know it's the wrong way to handle it, but you think that somehow it will alleviate the situation, alleviate the suffering, alleviate the heartache, and so there's that temptation that comes within the context of the test. So test and temptation often come together, and that's why one word is used to describe both and which side of it is determined by the context. So we read here, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. The first kind of pressure is the outside pressure of adversity. The second is stress. Stress is defined as the optional inside pressure of the soul caused by reaction to the external pressures of adversity. So you come along here, and you have some kind of external adversity. Maybe there's a hurricane that comes up and, and uh, uh, you have a, spawns tornadoes and it blows the roof off of your house. So you have an external adversity there. How are you going to respond? You have a choice. This is your test. Are you going to apply doctrine and keep a relaxed mental attitude? Or are you going to take what seems to be the easy way out and yield to the pressure of your sin nature and give in to anger and discouragement and depression and bitterness and all of these other things which are just the natural flow from the sin nature. And if you give in to the sin nature, then what you create here is an inside pressure inside the soul that threatens to break up and fragment the soul. That's why when we get down to um, verse 8, we'll see that the person who does this is considered a double-minded man. And that's a very interesting word in the Greek, part of the problem is the instability of the table. D-I-P. 
P-S-U-C-H-O-S. Disukos. This is the word for soul, suke. And, it, and D-I, just like in English, is the prefix for two. It's two-souled. Double-minded is literally a double-souled man. In other words, his soul begins to fragment because of the internal pressure of stress in the soul. So if you do not respond to adversity over time by applying doctrine, which heals the soul and strengthens the soul, that's edification, that whole concept to edify means to build up, to strengthen, to fortify. If you don't respond then, then what happens is this internal pressure begins to build up and just as you might take a, a, a beam of steel that has an internal flaw that's not perceptible to the human eye and put that under tons and tons of pressure, pretty soon, instead of holding up under that pressure because that, it has that hidden flaw, that hidden crack begins to expand and expand and then, and then it blows. And then you've got a problem, especially if that's holding up a building or a bridge or something like that. So adversity is the external pressure on the soul, and stress is the internal pressure. And when the believer is negative to Bible doctrine and allows adversity to penetrate the soul and to dominate, and he gives himself over to sins of arrogance and the emotional complex of sins, then the result is going to be tragic going to eventually destroy your spiritual life and you'll wind up a failure and maybe even the sin unto death. So point number one was that there are two kinds of pressures in life. Point number two, the adversity, which is the outside pressure on the soul, comes in two categories. Number one is suffering from the law of volitional responsibility. That means you choose to do something wrong. You choose to sin. Whether you know it's a sin or not is irrelevant because you want to do it and you do it. So because you want to do it, it's a, it's a sin and you're culpable for it. And because you do it, then there are negative consequences that come from it. Do not be deceived. Galatians 6, 7 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. Now, the law of volitional responsibility is sometimes intensified by divine discipline on top of that. So adversity can come as either suffering from the law of volitional responsibility or divine discipline. This is self-induced misery. You choose to do something wrong and you just reap the consequences. Or it can be suffering for blessing. You're, you're suffering, it's undeserved suffering, and it's blessing designed by God. It's testing designed, suffering designed to come into your life in order to accelerate your spiritual growth. So if you respond positively to the suffering, and you're in fellowship and filled with the Holy Spirit, and you're applying doctrine, then the result is that this is going to accelerate your spiritual growth and strengthen your soul, edify your soul, and build it up, and you're going to be on the road to spiritual maturity. So adversity can come as suffering for for, uh, the things you do wrong and suffering for blessing. Three, adversity is what the external circumstances of life do to you, Stress is what you do to yourself. So you don't have any choice about adversity. The scripture is clear. Everybody goes through adversity for a number of different reasons. The primary one is we live in a fallen world. We live with fallen people. 
There's always going to be adversity because people around us are imperfect and the system's imperfect. So there's always going to be undeserved suffering. There's always going to be various kinds of adversity. So we can't avoid that, but you can't avoid stress. Stress is what you do to yourself. It's the result of your own volition. Point number four, adversity is inevitable. Stress is optional. Stress depends on your negative volition. If you're positive and applying doctrine, there's no stress. You have no choice in adversity, but stress is up to you. Five, stress in the soul always results in sin nature control of your life. As soon as you respond with negative volition, it's immediately converted to stress and to sin nature control of your life. Eventually, if you continue in carnality, you will begin to regress spiritually. You will backslide, the scripture says, go into moral and immoral degeneracy, which destroys capacity for life, love, happiness, and wipes you out spiritually. Eventually, eventually it leads to complete instability. Uh, you've got a lot of Christians out there who are neurotic, psychotic, in mental institutions who are absolutely nuts because they've never been able to apply doctrine, and so they've just managed to screw their life up one time after another. But they're still believers. They never lose their salvation because their salvation is never dependent. Getting our salvation and maintaining our salvation is never dependent on what we do. Sixth, stress perpetuated in the soul means the failure to glorify God and therefore spiritual failure. And seven, the only solution, this is new, six is where we stopped the last time, seven is the only solution is the divine solution. The human solution is no solution. Human viewpoint offers all kinds of solutions. One of the popular ones today is psychotherapy. Any kind of psychology, counseling, anything of this sort always comes under the human solution. The divine solution is Bible doctrine, applying Bible doctrine. And there's no easy answers. There's no quick fix. There's no magic pill. There's so many people who just want something that's going to work today. But the issue is if you want to have success in your life, then that means success in your spiritual life. And that takes time and it takes effort and means making doctrine the priority in your life. It means coming to Bible class. It means coming here Sunday morning, Sunday twice on Sunday morning, Wednesday night. Every single chance you have to take in doctrine, you take it in. That's your priority. You schedule all the events around your life around Bible class so you can be there. Because that's what's going to build your soul. That's what's going to strengthen your soul. That's what's going to give you the information and the wisdom you need to make the right decisions in life. It's going to give you all of the criterion you need so that you can go out and be successful in whatever it is that you do in life. Because that comes only from Bible doctrine. So the only solution is the divine solution. So we have to know the divine solution. In 2 Corinthians 12, 8 and following, the Apostle Paul was dealing with the, uh, the thorn in the flesh, which I think was a demon, because he describes it as a messenger, which is the Greek word angelos, or angel, an angel, angelos, from Satan. So it was some kind of a demon that, that uh, was designed to bring a certain level of suffering or torment into Paul's life, and Paul 
uh, prayed to the Lord about that. He says, concerning this, I entreated the Lord three times that it might depart from me. Now, he used prayer there. Now, prayer is not one of our stress busters. Prayer is a method by which we apply several of these stress busters. But prayer itself is not a singular stress buster. The, um, so Paul prays about it, and the, God's answer is no. God always answers prayer, either yes, no, or later. And God said no. He said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses that the power of Christ may dwell in me. See, his human solution was the one we all have. Lord, just take it away. Right now, just take it away. And that's what we want to do so often is, Lord, just remove it. But the Lord is saying, if I remove it, you won't learn what I'm trying to teach you. You won't see my grace demonstrated in this weakness. You won't see my power demonstrated in this weakness. And therefore, you won't grow spiritually. So the divine solution is the only solution. The human solution never solves anything. So what are these stress busters that God has designed for us? What are these problem-solving devices that we can apply in any and every situation? As long as you know these and apply these, you can handle anything that takes place and never convert any adversity into stress. So here are the ten stress busters. The first is rebound or grace recovery. The reason the term rebound is used is in basketball, when you get... When you're out uh, playing basketball and you're shooting hoops and you shoot and you miss the goal, you're trying to score, trying to win, and you miss, and it bounces off the backboard, you get a chance to jump up and recover the ball and then a chance to score again. So the point here is, will that hold it down? Find something heavy enough. There's a hammer. That will hold it down. So the point is that rebound gives you a chance, if you mess up through sin, to recover and keep moving and keep playing and score again. That's the point. That's why the term rebound is used, and I kind of like it. I've used it all my life. So, um, you know, sometimes people have uh, problems with developing terminology that's not in the Scriptures, but we use words like Trinity and Rapture and hypostatic union and a number of other words that have entered into the... uh, vocabulary of historical theology down through the uh, generation. So people are always coining words that describe the categories of Scripture. It helps us to understand these things. So rebound is the grace provision for the carnal believer to recover the filling of the Holy Spirit through naming, admitting, acknowledging personal sins privately to God the Father. The method by which the believer's fellowship with God is restored so he can resume the spiritual life. This is 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And 1 Corinthians 11:28, that uh, that's the communion passage to examine yourself. Self-examination is essential to confession, to admission of our sins to God. Now... <clears throat> We know the greatest passage on this is Psalm 51, when David prayed to God as a result of all of his testing that he's gone under. He's under incredible 
incredible adversity because of all that he's gone through. And it's all self-induced, divine discipline because of his adultery with Bathsheba, murder of Uriah the Hittite. And David is just plagued with incredible guilt because of his sin. He's going through incredible inner torment. His description of it in in other psalms is just uh, his bones ached, his muscles ached. He just had no energy. I mean, he's classically depressed and discouraged and stress is fragmenting his soul. And so finally he comes to the point where he confesses his sin. That doesn't wipe out the consequences because David went through tragic consequences as part of divine discipline for the rest of his life. It was meted out to him in four stages, and his family just fragmented. He had one son who killed another son because that son had committed incest with the daughter. Then Absalom, who uh, had killed the other son, later rebelled against David, and Absalom was killed in that rebellion. And all of this is all part of David's discipline. Now, David was back in fellowship, so he goes through all of that suffering, but it's able to be blessing and count to his spiritual growth because in that he was able to apply doctrine and grow. But who wants to go through all that additional suffering because of carnality? So never, don't ever get the idea that, that uh, confession means that, well, I can just sin and then confess it and get away with it because God doesn't treat it like that. It's not a license to sin. It's a license to grow spiritually so that you're not hindered completely by the sins that you commit. It gives you a chance to recover and move forward. The second problem, so that's the big problem-solving device, because that's what gets you moving. That's your big stress buster. At that point, you're back in fellowship, so you're stopping the stress at that point, and you can now handle it with doctor. And the result of of, uh, confession is stress buster number two, the filling of the Holy Spirit. Filling of the Holy Spirit is defined as the soul of the believer under the temporary control of the Holy Spirit. It's temporary because as soon as you sin again, you immediately lose it. You're under the control of sin nature and you're out of fellowship with God and you're trying to run your life on your own terms. Define the soul of the believer under the temporary control of the Holy Spirit, the divine provision of the power of God to execute the Christian life. See, God gives us two basic power options, two basic means of power in the spiritual life. Number one is the Word of God. Number two is the Spirit of God. These two work together. You can't have one without the other. Mysticism says that you can have the spiritual life with just the Holy Spirit. Don't worry about doctrine. Let's just have an affair with the Holy Spirit. And so you get all excited and all emotional and call that the Holy Spirit, and that's the Pentecostal route. The uh, legalistic route or the Gnostic route is let's just get into the Word and pay attention to the Word, and we get all intellectual, but we never apply it in our lives. There's never any application from the Holy Spirit because there's never any fellowship from the Holy Spirit, and that usually reduces Christianity to just a lot of ethical commandments and morality And it's not that spirituality isn't moral, but spirituality is beyond morality. Morality is for every single member of the human race. Morality is establishment principles. Spirituality goes beyond that. Spirituality is based on the life of the Holy Spirit and what he produces inside of us. 
because of the Bible doctrine that we have learned and stored in our soul. So the filling of the Holy Spirit is absolutely essential to living the spiritual life. It never ceases to amaze me when you talk to some Christians and you say, well, well, I want to live the spiritual life. Well, how are you going to do that? And then they list all of these commands of Scripture and say, well, I'm going to apply those. Well, how do you... I thought the Holy Spirit was the one that produced a spiritual life. How do you know that the Holy Spirit is doing it and that's just not you doing it out of morality? Well, I really don't know. Because in much of Christianity, they've rejected the idea that 1 John 1, 9 is connected with Ephesians 5.18. And sometime we'll do a study where we'll go through the context of both 1 John 1 and Ephesians 5 and show that there are many, many parallels between the two passages. And just because you don't have any passage in Scripture that automatically connects the two doesn't mean that they're, they're not connected, because they are. How do you know whether or not you're walking by the flesh or walking by the Spirit? How do you know that the, that the good that you do is human good or divine good? You have to have a way of telling Otherwise, you just reduce the Christian life to simple morality. And then it becomes legalism. And that's what happens with lordship salvation. That's what happens in Reformed Christianity. Uh, and it's happened over and over again. And where many people are going in evangelicalism today, they've confused morality with spirituality. So the filling of the Holy Spirit is essential to continuing. Once you... Admit your sins to God and you're back in fellowship. You've got to stay there. You've got to keep going forward. And that's through the filling of the Holy Spirit. But this isn't some mystical thing. The Holy Spirit's the energizer, but it's sort of un- he's sort of unseen. He's the one working behind the scenes. But at the same time, you have to be doing something with doctrine in your soul. He doesn't override your volition. It's a little bit of a misnomer to say that we're under the control of the Holy Spirit. Because that would imply that the Holy Spirit controls what we do. And He doesn't. It's better to say we're filled by the Holy Spirit because that's really what the Greek says. The Greek says that you are filled in pneumity. And this is an instrumental case. That's E-N-P-N-E-U-M-A-T-I. Instrumental or means. So the best translation is we are filled by means of the Holy Spirit. Now what does he fill us with? He fills us with doctrine. That means you have to be somewhere where you're exposed to the teaching of God's Word so that that, the Holy Spirit can then fill your soul with that doctrine. So you're filled by means of the Holy Spirit, and then He brings it to mind, and you have to use your volition to choose to apply it or not. So the first Stress buster is confession of sin. The second is filling of the Holy Spirit. And the third gets us into doctrine itself, and that is the faith rest drill. Faith rest, 
means that we believe God and we rest in His power. It doesn't mean we believe God and we don't do anything because there's many commands that say to do something. For example, uh, verse 2 says, count it all joy. Faith rest doesn't mean I'm going to believe God and not do anything. Faith rest says I'm going to believe God and count it all joy. So there's an active side to faith. The active side is doing what the imperative says to do. The rest side is to, be, is to give rest to your soul, knowing that if I apply what God says to do, then I can relax, because God's in control and I don't have to worry about it. Faith rest drill is defined as the believer's basic problem-solving device for claiming the promises of God and mixing them with faith through the filling of the Holy Spirit to generate tranquility of soul in the midst of the adversities of life. The faith rest drill maintains a believer's ability to think under pressure, to keep his emotions in perspective, and to appreciate the grace of God. Can you all read what's on the board back uh, back row? Is that okay? I was wondering about that. I didn't know what point size to do with that. To appreciate the grace of God, Hebrews 4, 1 to 3a, 2 Peter 1, 3 through 4. The three stages of the faith rest drill are, number one, mixing the promises of God with faith to stabilize the soul. That's simply claiming a promise. Claiming a promise like um, uh, 1 Peter 5, 7, 7, casting all your care upon him because he cares for you. Or Philippians... uh, uh, 4, 5, and 6. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Or Philippians um, uh, 4.18. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Or Philippians, um, uh, I think it's Philippians 4.20. But my God shall supply all your need through his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. That's just claiming promises that we know in the scripture. But you know what? Before you can claim a promise, when you're out there at work, or you're driving down the highway, or you're at home and there's a crisis that comes in, before you can claim a promise, you have to know a promise. And the only way for you to know that promise so you can claim it when the crisis comes is if you've taken the time to memorize that promise, to commit it to memory so that it's locked away in your soul so that you can claim it in the crisis. Because if it's not there when the crisis comes, it's too late. You've got to do it when the crisis comes. That's why in the military you train, 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 and train in a non-combat situation because when the combat situation comes... It's too late to figure out how to use your your M16. You better know how to use it and go through that training so that it's automatic. You don't have to think. You automatically know exactly what to do. And see, that's what these promises are. These are our weapons in the believer's life. And when the crisis comes, when adversity comes, and we are make sure we're in fellowship, we're under the filling of the Holy Spirit, then we have to apply those promises. We have to know them in our soul. Faith rest drill begins with, number one, mixing the promises of God with faith 
to stabilize the soul. As soon as we, the crisis hits, we want to fragment, we want to push the panic button, we want to respond in anger or, or anxiety or worry or whatever it is, and all of a sudden we just remind ourselves of what God has said by, by rehearsing that promise in our mind, and immediately we begin to calm down and our emotions stabilize, we focus on the situation, we become objective and not subjective. Instead of being self-absorbed, we look at life from God's perspective and we're able to move on. Secondly, we glean from those promises relevant doctrines or rationales. A rationale is a series of reasonings, series of principles that you put together in a logical relationship. So we look at, at these doctrines. That's what uh, David does over and over again in, in, in the Psalms. Um, he says, um, let, me, let me look at one in Psalm 56. I know it's a very short psalm. He says, Be gracious, O God, for man has trampled upon me. Fighting all day long, he oppresses me. This is his problem. This is his adversity, is it, that, that he's under all sorts of adversity from foes, from political adversaries, from uh, military enemies, whatever the case may be. Um, when he's, uh, the, the situation is that when the Philistines seized him in Gath, so they're his, his enemies, and he's thrown in jail there. And he says, when I am afraid... Now see, he talks about his problem, and he's focusing on God, and now in verse 3, he begins to stabilize his emotions. When I am afraid, I will put my trust in thee. In God, whose word I pray. See how he goes from the problem to focus on eternal principles of doctrine, and he's beginning to reason his way through doctrinally and think it through. In God I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. And then he reaches an important conclusion here. What can mere man do to me? I mean, God's everything. What, what kind of problem is this? These guys are nothing compared to God. All day long they distort my words. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They attack, they lurk, they watch my steps as they have waited to take my life because of wickedness. Cast them forth and anger. Put down the peoples, O God. See, he's gone from worry and fear to now he's strong. He's operating on doctrine and he knows exactly how, how he needs to take care of it. He focuses on what God has done. So the faith rest drill, you glean from a promise relevant doctrines and you reason on the basis of those doctrines and use that in your prayer life when you're uh, praying to God in the midst of that crisis. Now point number three, you reach doctrinal conclusions so that faith controls the soul. As you reach those conclusions that if God is for me, who can be against me, Romans 8, then faith controls the soul and you're stabilized. There's no stress. Adversity has been fought off and you're calm, you're relaxed, able to handle whatever the situation is. The fourth stress buster is grace orientation. Grace orientation is defined as aligning our thoughts and actions to the non-meritorious policy of God based on the firm assurance that we receive the consideration equity and care of the Supreme Court of Heaven. I want to read that again. That's a powerful sentence. 
aligning our thoughts and actions to the non-meritorious policy of God. That means that if you're ever going to get to the point which is the eighth problem-solving device of unconditional love for mankind, true biblical love for people, then you've got to understand grace orientation. Because grace orientation says God treats us not on the basis of what we deserve, but on the basis of who and what he is. That we're not out here trying to earn God's favor by what we do in life. That God loves us because of who he is and what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And it has nothing to do with who and what we are. And it will never have anything to do with who and what we are. And as soon as we can get that through our thick heads, we're going to stop trying to impress God as we handle our situations in life. No matter how we, what the situation, what the adversity, what the trial, We need to learn that we're not going to impress God with anything. We need to relax and rely on Him because He's provided everything for us. That's His non-meritorious policy. It's called grace. When we understand God's grace policy toward us and how little we deserve the incredible bounty He provides, we grow spiritually and our thinking adapts to His procedures. We begin to apply this charitable policy of undeserved favor to ourselves and to others, and we become increasingly sensitive to and tolerant of the weaknesses of those around us. This is powerful. Grace orientation is foundation to everything that comes later in the spiritual life. These first uh, five stress busters are really part of growing from spiritual infancy to spiritual adolescence. This is where spiritual childhood takes place. If you don't get these down, you will never grow to spiritual maturity because these are the foundation to the later, more advanced stress busters. Nothing we deserve comes from God. That's why the scripture says we should be thankful for everything. Because if we got exactly what we would, what we deserved, we would all be roasting in hell at this minute. Because that's what we deserve. Grace means we don't get what we deserve. Grace means that God blesses us infinitely because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross for us. And it's on that basis that we should treat other people. See, it doesn't just stop with us, but it has to do with how we treat other people. This gives us the basis for truly being able to love others, not on the basis of what they do, how they respond to us, how they live up to our expectations, but to truly love them with objectivity and stability, no matter what the circumstance. If you don't understand grace orientation, you will never understand true love in your life. Period. The fifth stress buster. Two verses. Ephesians 4.31 Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice and be kind, kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. 
That's the model. God in Christ forgave you. It was non-meritorious. Because of that, you're to put away bitterness and wrath and anger and slander and be kind to one another. So if you don't understand the last part of that, you will never be able to do what precedes. You will never be able to apply the mandate. Doctrinal orientation. Before you can truly be oriented to doctrine, you have to begin by being oriented to life. What is orientation? Orientation means to line up with the standard. I remember when I first learned orienteering. Any of you guys have been in the military, all have gone through orienteering courses. You've gone through, you guys in the Navy have gone through navigation courses, navigation training. You, you immediately have a map and you don't know which way is what, and you get a compass, and that compass tells you where magnetic north is, and you line magnetic, you go to the compass rows on the map, and you line magnetic north on the map, and you figure out whatever your deviation is, you line it up with magnetic north on the compass, and then you look at that map and you look at your surroundings and you line yourself up with your surroundings. Now you know what reality is, right? When that map or that chart is not in alignment and if it's skewed off 10 degrees or 20 degrees, then you're divorced from reality to that degree. So doctrinal orientation means you the, the map of reality the objective reality is the Word of God. And doctrinal orientation means you're going to take your the highest priority in your life. So doctrinal orientation is defined as the renovation and alignment of the believer's thinking to the plan of God through metabolized doctrine circulating in the stream of consciousness in the right lobe of your soul. Now, that takes us back to how you learn doctrine. How you learn doctrine is very important. First of all, the pastor teacher communicates doctrine to you and through your human spirit, which you receive at the moment of salvation, which enables you to understand doctrine, and the filling of the Holy Spirit, you are able to comprehend doctrine at a basic level. It is then transferred automatically by the Holy Spirit to the left lobe of the soul, which is called the nous in Greek, N-O-U-S, or mind. This is the staging area for doctrine. The left lobe, this is where academic principles are stored. In the process of learning anything in life, first you learn it academically. It doesn't matter what it is, whether it's carpentry, whether it's surgery, whether it's computer skills, whatever, first you learn it academically and then you begin to apply it. At that moment that you understand it academically in your mind, you have a choice. Volition comes to play. You can either accept it as true or you can reject it. Negative volition. If you accept it as true, then it is transferred by the Holy Spirit into the right lobe of your soul, which the Bible calls the innermost part of your soul, the cardia, K-A-R-D-I-A, or heart. It is there that doctrine is stored and circulates. 
so that the Holy, under the filling of the Holy Spirit, you can recall those doctrines to mind to apply them in the circumstances of life. So doctrinal orientation means that you are taking in doctrine, you're learning it, you're believing it, the Holy Spirit is transferring it into your soul, but you have to apply it. The Holy Spirit never takes the place of your volition. You're the one who has to decide whether this is going to be a part of your life. You can assimilate it through the Holy Spirit so that it becomes a part of your thinking, but then you have to put it into practice. You have to use it. So doctrinal orientation, the renovation and alignment of the believer's thinking to the plan of God through metabolized doctrine circulating in the stream of consciousness in the right lobe of the soul. Remembering and applying doctrine in the soul so the divine viewpoint characterizes and permeates a believer's thinking. You're going to live and breathe doctrine. Now that doesn't mean you're going to beat people over the head with it. Now, there's a lot of Christians, especially when they're new and they're learning a lot of doctrine, boy, they go run out and they start beating everybody over the head with it. Well, Jesus said that's casting your pearls before swine. And don't do it. You know, you have to be sensitive to unbelievers. They can't understand a thing about doctrine because they don't have the equipment. They don't have a human spirit. They're spiritually dead. You have to give them the gospel, and that's your responsibility. Number one responsibility as a believer is to make sure those around you Accurately understand the gospel. That's your job. Wherever you're doing as an ambassador, that's your job. But Bible doctrine has to permeate your thinking. When we're inculcated with doctrinal norms and standards, we rely on the Lord. We make good decisions, accurately and objectively evaluate our lives, and resolve the dilemmas of life with the problem-solving devices or stress busters. Okay, that's the first five. Now we move on to six. The sixth is where we start getting a little more sophisticated and a little more advanced in our spiritual growth. Six is a personal sense of destiny. Personal sense of of your eternal destiny is when you sit down today and you realize that every decision you make today is determining who you're going to be for eternity. It doesn't just affect your life here and now, but what you do today affects your position in eternity. That's what Scripture teaches. Everything we do right here and now is either going to accrue to rewards or a loss of rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. While we're on the earth right now, As you apply doctrine, you develop the capacity for life, for love, for happiness. You develop the capacity for a relationship with God. It's that capacity that you carry with you into heaven. Some people who are losers in the spiritual life and complete failures are going to go into heaven with zero capacity for a relationship with God. They're going to be losers. And 1 Corinthians 3 says that they enter into heaven yet as through fire. All their works are totaled up and burned up. Nothing's left. It's all wood, hay, and stubble. And they go into heaven yet as through fire with absolutely nothing. No capacity for where they are. No capacity for enjoyment, 
of God. Nothing. So what you do today determines what you're going to be for eternity. So that's what a personal sense of destiny is. It's when you understand that every test accrues to your spiritual growth and your capacity for eternity, and then you begin to take things a little more seriously because of its eternal impact, that's when you're getting a personal sense of destiny. As the believer advances to spiritual adulthood, he develops absolute confidence in God's plan developed through learning doctrine, the utilization of the first five problem-solving devices, and continued advance in the spiritual life. As a believer begins to live his life in the light of eternity, it results in an enhanced capability to objectively and accurately evaluate himself, to overcome adversity, to deter stress, and to solve problems. Your future develops specific dimensions and a sharp focus. You begin to realize more and more that you're a citizen of heaven and you're just passing through this world and what really matters is that which counts for eternity. The believer's individual niche in the plan of God acquires a personal perspective. And with this sense of one's own destiny, the maturing believer begins to know and experience the shared destiny with Christ as his own. It becomes less academic and more real. You know that where you're going is heaven. This is the picture you get of Abraham who traveled and never had a permanent home. He lived in a tent, but his focus was on that city of God that he knew he was headed for. He's got an eternal focus. He's got an understanding of what his destiny is, and that's what he's working to. He's working now. He's living now in light of eternity. The present decisions are what you determine what you will be for eternity. That is your personal sense of eternal destiny. The seventh problem-solving device, then, is a personal love for God the Father. As a believer learns and applies doctrine, his knowledge of God increases. You respond with respect, admiration, and reverence for who God is, And all that he has done for you, all the incredible spiritual blessings he's given you, all of the assets he's provided you for facing everything in life. This is Deuteronomy 6.5, Matthew 22.37, and 1 Peter 1.8. Only God is absolute perfection, therefore he is the only worthy object of personal love. The virtue generated from personal love for God provides the only basis for value and stability in human love. You see, when the average person says, I love you, what they're saying is, I love something about you. The object of love, the you, has something attractive about them that the love is based on. If that disappears, the love goes away. That's why it's also called a conditional love. It's predicated upon the other person meeting certain certain conditions in order for there to be love. That's usually what happens in your typical marriage ceremony. You have the two people standing there and they're exchanging vows and what they're really saying to one another is, I love you because of how you make me feel. And I'm going to give you the opportunity to make me feel like this for the rest of my life. <laughs> See, the whole point in love is it comes from your virtue and integrity. And if a person doesn't have virtue 
and integrity in their own soul, then they can't love somebody else. Because when the going gets tough, what does it say in the marriage vows? For richer, for poorer, and for better, for worse, in sickness and in health. You know, well, most people hear prosperity and better and health. But what if it's going to be one or two years of that and 40 years of sickness and adversity and illness and hardship? What if the other person loses their good looks? year after they get married, the wife has a baby, puts on 50 pounds, loses her figure, has a bad complexion, hair turns oily. You know, you cannot ever base your love and your affection on physical appearance, on anybody else, on what they look like or what they are. Love has to be based on who and what you are. As a believer, that comes only from Bible doctrine and the development of virtue and integrity and honor. And that leads to the next problem-solving device, which is unconditional love for all mankind. You know, people are the source of all kinds of problems in our lives. And if we don't learn to have unconditional love for them, then the opposite is bitterness and anger and resentment and vindictiveness and giving in to all kinds of feelings because they're the cause of our misery. So we have to develop as believers unconditional love for all mankind. Jesus said that by your love, they will know that you are my disciples. This is the consistent function of individual integrity towards friends, enemies, loved ones, strangers. It is a non-emotional. It's not emotional Emotion goes up and down, here today, gone tomorrow. It's a non-emotional, unconditional regard for the entire human race that does not require intimacy, friendship, attractiveness, or even acquaintance with the specific object of love. See, there's no way when Scripture says to love your brethren, there's love demands, personal love demands knowledge. But there's no way you can know everybody. You can't know everybody in this room. But the Scriptures command that you love one another. So it's not a love that requires intimacy, friendship, attractiveness, or even acquaintance. Unconditional love derives from the virtue of the subject, not the appeal or merit of the object of love, and views all people through the eyes of a virtuous character built on Bible doctrine and personal love for God the Father. It's a love that is based on who God is and what God has done for the human race. It's not a love that's based on who and what I am. Because I'm still a sinner, and I'm still mutable. But God's immutable, so it's a love ultimately that's based on who and what God is and what, what He has done for us. And if you don't have unconditional love for all mankind, you will never have a successful marriage because that's the bedrock for all human love. If you're going to be a success in life, you've got to develop unconditional love for all mankind. Nine is inner happiness. Inner happiness is the mental attitude of the spiritually maturing believer who maintains an attitude of optimism, 
reassurance, animation, and joy in every circumstance, including adversity. When the spiritual life takes precedence over external circumstances, and the believer keeps his eyes on God's solutions rather than his own problems, divine inner tranquility and contentment conquers unhappiness and overcomes any detrimental environment. John 15.11 and James James 1.2 The mental attitude of the spiritually maturing believer who maintains an attitude of optimism, reassurance, animation, and joy in every circumstance of life, including adversity. You've got to let your focus be on God. When you realize that God is really in control and that you really love God and that He truly loves you, then the circumstances of life fade in terms of their significance. This is clearly an attitude that does not come to the spiritually immature or the baby in diapers. That's why when you come to James 1, 2 and it says, Count it all joy... This is a command that's addressed to a maturing believer. This is not a command that the newborn believer can, do, can handle because he just doesn't have the doctrinal background or foundation in order to do that. He can to a small degree. Even a, a young believer, a baby or a growing believer, a believer who's a, who's a child spiritually, has a certain amount of doctrine that he can apply and he can have a measure of, of, of inner happiness. But it's something that is really much more advanced in the spiritual life. And then tenth and last is occupation with Christ. Maximum personal love for the Lord Jesus Christ that comes from Bible doctrine circulating in the stream of consciousness. By means of the filling of the Holy Spirit so that the mind of Christ, 1 Corinthians 2.16, influences every thought and action. The issue here is that when the crisis hits, the first thing, the thought that comes into your mind is, how would Jesus handle this? Now, that's not a subjective answer, because there's a lot of people who ask that, and in their superficial Christianity, they come up with all kinds of wacky answers. But as a mature believer who's got doctrine in his soul, you know exactly what the mind of Christ says, what Scripture says. So when you say, how would Jesus handle this, you have doctrine. To answer that, this is exactly how Jesus would handle the situation. You have promises, you have doctrinal rationales, you have doctrinal conclusions, all of this to back it up. You know exactly how the Lord would handle it. Occupation with Christ means Jesus Christ is the focus. Hebrews 12, 2, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. So these are our ten problem-solving devices. Now, how do they work? When they, they work together. Here's your soul. Out here you have the attacks of adversity, the outside pressure on the soul. As you, in the soul, you have your self-consciousness and mentality and emotions volition, and conscience. As you respond in doctrine, what happens is it strengthens your soul and builds a line of fortification. How often the scriptures talk about how the Lord, you are the bulwark, the fortress of my soul. 
This is David's use of this, this military analogy over and over again, that God fortifies the soul. As you learn doctrine, as you apply doctrine, as you use these stress busters continually in your life, then what happens is your soul is strengthened. It builds up that soul, it fortifies it, and it becomes easier and easier to handle those adversities and to apply doctrine the next time, and it builds up the strength and fortifies and protects your souls against the outside pressure. And the result is there's no stress. No stress in the soul. These are stress busters. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word that's so clear to us in these doctrinal principles that we have, that in the midst of life's adversities and traumas, whatever happens, whether it's prosperity or whether it's adversity, that all of these things can bring stress if we do not have doctrine in our souls and are not applying it. But we know from these principles that you have provided us with everything we need, everything we need for life and the spiritual life, so that we do not need to rely on anything other than doctrine. Your word is absolutely sufficient. Your power is all that, you, that, that we need. And your power, your strength is perfected in our weakness. And we need to realize that the divine solution is the only solution. And it is only by that that we can grow to spiritual maturity and glorify you in the angelic conflict. So, Father, as we go throughout this week, whatever adversities or trials we face, I pray that we could remember these truths, apply them in our lives, as the Holy Spirit fills and leads us. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.